there have been a couple really great quotable quotes um, that have come out since uh, the announcement. And one of my favorites, uh, and the dean will appreciate this, was in the was in al.com when uh, the picture that they used to make the announcement was. Uh, Basically, what I'm wearing right now is wearing this blue shirt, and underneath of it, one of the commenters wrote, meaning to be very cruel, but, but I thought it was very funny, uh, said, fantastic, his shirt matches his girly church. <laughs> and um, <laughs> little does he know, I thought it was very funny. I laughed. Um, I'm not sure what he meant, but it was funny. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about uh, a quote that has been uh, used often, and I'm sure almost everybody in this room has said it, uh, but for the grace of God, go I. And the man who coined that phrase was a man named John Bradford who lived in the 1500s. Uh, John Bradford was one of the most learned of reformers at the time of the English Reformation. Uh, he uh, was the chaplain to uh, Bishop uh, Ridley, who was the Bishop of London at the time. And, of course, uh, their martyrdom is a little more famous. Uh, Latimer and Ridley uh, there who were burned in Oxford and Cranmer was made to watch. And you can still go there today. There's a martyr's memorial in Oxford, but it, uh, it looks like an un- a church that's been buried, but the steeple is out of the ground. And uh, it's a great trick that is played on first years at Oxford when you're told that actually you can visit the church underground. And then they try to do it, and, of course, it doesn't exist. Uh, but... Uh, around the corner from it, in the middle of uh, the market area, there's a little cross made of bricks, and that's actually where the martyrdom happened. Uh, so he was chaplain to Bishop Ridley, and uh, John Bradford was burned at the stake in 1555 in Smithfield, which is right outside of London. And uh, like many of the reformers, they were forced to watch others go to their deaths. Uh, for Cranmer, it was in the Northgate Prison, which has now been turned into an actual church, and he was forced to stand at the North Tower of the city of Oxford, or what was then the North Tower, and watch Latimer and Ridley burn to death. And Bradford was forced to watch several go to their deaths at the stake. And John Bradford one day was watching this happen, and knowing that it would move him, uh, someone asked him what, what he thought of being forced to watch these poor souls go to their death. Uh, by order of Queen Mary, and John Bradford said, uh, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. There but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. In spite of the fact that he knew that um, he knew the, the date that he was to go to the stake, and he knew that it would be him one day very soon that would be going to his death, uh, but what John Bradford was recognizing uh, was his own nature and what he knew Uh, he deserved. Now, it wasn't a just sentence to send John Bradford to the stake or his companion, John Leach, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, But what he was saying and what he was conveying to us even today in 2012, uh, 13, hello, uh, 2013, was that, um, that every good thing that we have is, is from God. And that we look at other people in our lives and even those outside of our lives, the people around us, and, and we see a lot of folks fall into great uh, trouble. Uh, they might have gone off the deep end. Uh, and instead of looking at, at them and saying, I'm glad. Like, remember the Pharisee and the publican uh, where the Pharisee says, I'm glad I'm not that man? Right? Instead of saying that, John Bradford's prayer is, uh, 
that would be me if it weren't for God's grace intervening in my life. I know that I'm just as capable of as much sin as that person is committing, uh, except God intervened in my life. And by His grace and His grace alone, I've not gone off the deep end. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul tells us that at the end of the day, what we've earned, you know, right now Lauren and I are going through a house renovation, and so if you want to use a paintbrush, come on over. That's not a joke. Just kidding. It is a joke. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, uh, after they've done all of this work to the house, uh, they expect to get paid. Right? And they'll say, this is what I've earned. Look, this was the before picture and this is the after. And, and I've done all of this work. And, and we will say, job well done. Here is your wage. Here is what you've earned. Uh, and it's the same for us, too, because of our sinfulness, our own nature, that at the end of the day, when we go to collect our spiritual paycheck, what God, has, God says to us is, because of what you've earned in a job uh, well executed uh, in sin, You've earned death. Here you go. All right. That's actually what we've earned, but God intervenes through Jesus. And so instead of getting what we deserve, we get what we don't deserve, which is a gift that is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I want to talk about this and sort of this understanding of you know how we receive life and how it comes to us and how we view the world around us and uh, getting what we deserve and what is a gift. And I want us to look at it through generational lenses because my generation is very different from generations that have gone before. Uh, their uh, generation, generation X and Y, uh, we mostly think that we deserve a break. We think, for the most part, we deserve a lot better than what we get. And if we don't get what we want to get, we think that it's a problem outside of us and not a problem with ourselves. Now, that's not confined to younger generations, uh, but it seems to be uh, heavily uh, apparent uh, and present in those. And um, a lot of it has to do with the immense amount of pressure on our generations uh, to succeed. There was a great uh, article in the Huffington Post recently, uh, and it was entitled, Why Generation Y Yuppies Are Unhappy. Uh, And the author talks about Generation Y Yuppies as gypsies. Uh, Fun little acronym. And one of the reasons why they're finding that people who are graduating college now are having such a hard time, and if they're asked, are you happy or not, and they say, well, I'm very unhappy, Uh, they have a hard time articulating why it is that they're unhappy. And yet what researchers have found is this is what has happened. Uh, The greatest generation that was grown, uh, according to some, that grew up in the Great Depression and worked very hard, uh, saved as much as they could, uh, basically were the first generation uh, in forever and ever and ever that was able to retire I mean, retirement was not in people's vocabulary until uh, the 1950s and 60s. Nobody retired. People worked until they could no longer work, and then they moved in with their family. Or they, uh, there might have been a home that they could move into. But this whole notion of moving to Boca uh, was foreign, right? <laughs> Florida didn't exist until 1950. <laughs> right? It wasn't even there. Uh, and... 
it just, you know, it's a lovely day in the villages. Uh, you know, the, you would not find 75,000 people over the age of 60 in one area. Go to the publics. That's weird. Uh, in the villages. I have a grandmother there. So uh, that just that notion of retirement didn't exist. You just worked. And Don Menendez, and I'm not sure he's in this class, he did a really great uh, Sunday school class several months ago on the whole idea of work. And so I would uh, put that out for you to to look up on the uh, Internet, on the Advent website. Uh, but this generation actually worked very hard and was able to save enough up for retirement. And like any generation, what is your hope for the next generation? That they're able to do the same or better than you were able to do. And that baby boomer generation came along during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, which is a time of unprecedented growth and wealth in the history of the world. And so that generation, the baby boomer generation, for the most part, there are, of course, differences, for the most part, were able to do better than their parents. And yet, Generation Y, the children of the baby boomers, are finding themselves not doing as well as their parents at this point, at this point. And because of this, uh, this has given rise to a number of things. Uh, one of the things that has come out of it are the notion of helicopter parents, a lot of baby boomer parents who are so uh, driven to see their children succeed that their parents, and this, is, this was written up in the Washington Post because it is a problem, uh, that parents are actually, they're having a hard time now, interviewers are, because parents are now showing up for their children's interviews. Uh, and the Washington Post profile did a really great thing. Well, this poor guy is sitting there, and his mom goes in the interview with him. And, and we're not talking, I mean, this is a significant interview. I think it was with um, some consulting company in Washington, D.C., like Booz Allen Hamilton. And, and they go in, and the guy's mom is sitting there, and, and he didn't get the job. And, of course, the son did what he was supposed to do. He wrote a letter saying, thank you for the opportunity to interview. However, his mom wrote Booz Allen Hamilton as well. And it said, you are making the worst mistake of your life. And where my son hasn't have, have time to hound you about this, I do. And uh, I'm pretty sure they still haven't offered him the job. And yet the parent clearly cares a lot about the child and yet is going to such lengths to try to make sure that they succeed that they're actually torpedoing them. And a, a formula for happiness is that happiness equals reality minus expectations. Happiness equals reality minus expectations. And so one of the problems of why a lot of Generation Y people are saying that they're unhappy is because their expectations are set way too high. My last year of college, I lived with uh, two guys. One of them was of uh, Indian uh, descent. His, parent, his grandparents immigrated from the subcontinent of India to America. And the other one uh, was of Chinese uh, extraction. And his grandparents immigrated from China. And just the immense pressure that they said that their parents put on them to get good grades. And I remember one conversation they were having with one another because they felt like when it came to grades and meeting expectations, they couldn't talk to the rest of us in the house. They had to talk to one another. And uh, one of them said to the other, uh, asked the other, hey, how did you do on that, on that test? And the other one said, I got an A minus. And the other one said, ooh, an Asian F. Um, <laughs> um, uh, well, they said it. Uh, and 
it's uh, there's an immense amount of pressure, and when the expectations are set so high, uh, you are setting yourself up for failure. One of the amazing things uh, that I've encountered in the past couple of years is that when I graduated from college, or when I was in my last year of college, anybody who was a real go-getter and ambitious and had the skills to make this happen, uh, they interviewed at big consulting firms like BCG, McKinsey. That was like the golden job. And, uh, and one of my buddies uh, interviewed uh, with uh, a little company that was once known as Anderson, uh, and he got the job, and then two months later lost the job. Remember, remember Enron? That was that was that. So it didn't work out for him, and so we remember feeling so devastated for him. But all of our other friends who went off to work for McKinsey and and BCG and uh, Bain and all of those places, um, I hope none of their bosses are in here, but uh, they still work for them now. And we all go uh, every Labor Day weekend. We all go together. There are five uh, families that get together. And uh, five families, 11 children, no boys. No boys amongst them. Something bad is happening. <laughs> anyway, uh, but we, were, we all sit around. And every year it always comes back to the conversation of uh, how are we doing in life and, and uh, what are we thinking. And what amazes me is that I'm the only one in that group that is, knows that what they're doing at that moment in time as a vocation will be doing it for the rest of their lives, God willing. Like these guys who landed the jobs out of college are now saying, I really got to get out of this job. It's bad for my family. Um, I, and I really, you know, here I am, uh, early, mid-30s, and I, I thought I had the best job in the world, and I don't know what I'm going to do now. I don't know what I'm going to do now. So all of a sudden it went from I landed the job to I've got to get out of this, and I have no idea how I'm moving forward in life. They've actually achieved what the world would say is success, and yet now they're at a complete loss and unhappy. Now, one of the things that um, society has done uh, for uh, my generation is that they have... uh, made sure that all of us think that we're gifted and talented, regardless of whether we are or not. And, of course, this happened in the early 80s with teen pregnancy on the rise, drug use on the rise, alcohol abuse on the rise. Uh, Some psychiatrists and sociologists thought, well, the way to fix the problem is to give kids better self-esteem. Well, um, what has happened is the statistics haven't changed at all. We've just been more confident in abusing those things we ought not to. (laughs) And uh, William Irvine, uh, a great uh, evolutionary biologist, wrote this in his book, A Slap in the Face. He said, the self-esteem movement was a noble experiment. Those who undertook it had the best of intentions. And in one respect, the experiment was a success. It produced a generation of people who, by all accounts, thought very highly of themselves. Between the early 1950s and the late 1980s, the number of teenagers who agreed with the statement I am an important person, increased from 12% to 80%. They also scored much higher on psychological tests of narcissistic behavior than teens of earlier generations had. In particular, they were inclined to agree with statements like these. If I ruled the world, it would be a better place. And I am a special person. And of course, no matter how hard we tried, simply boosting people's self-esteem Uh, didn't fix the problem. And in fact, it's got us into a problem now where you have lots of people who are in their 30s 
and 20s who are incredibly unhappy because they have a false view of themselves. And even as they enter the workplace, when they do land a great job, Paul Harvey, not um, the rest of the story guy, but a professor at the University of New Hampshire writes this, managers have reported a lot of problems associated with this thing, giftedness idea. Primarily that these employees have unrealistic expectations and a strong resistance toward accepting negative feedback. Now this explains why your children are all ill-behaved. Basically, entitlement involves having an inflated view of oneself, and managers are finding that younger employees are often very resistant to anything that doesn't involve praise and rewards. According to Harvey, people who feel entitled to preferential treatment more often than not exhibit self-serving attributional styles, the tendency to take credit for good outcomes and blame others when things go wrong. And people with self-serving attributional styles are less happy in their jobs and more apt to cause conflict in the workplace, and I would also say the home, especially with their supervisors slash parents slash spouses. I added the slashes. Well, the church has been, some has colluded in it somewhat in that uh, in some sense, uh, simply because, and a lot of people get tired of hearing it, uh, putting out that idea that the wages of sin is death. The reality of ourselves is that uh, we are only exceptionally gifted when it comes to how we go about sinning. Uh, when my grandmother came to visit once, Lily, our firstborn, had just come out of the oven, basically, and uh, she was learning to eat, and she was at that weird, you know, the phase where they... They think they know what they're doing, and they demand to feed themselves with a utensil, but they have no business doing it. You know that phase? And, and she was doing it, and I was getting frustrated. And finally, I went to reach for the spoon, and she flung it at me. And I looked at her with food on me, and I said, surely you were sinful from your mother's womb. <laughs> and, um, and my grandmother was beside herself. She... She was furious with me over that comment. And without missing a beat, I said to her, I said, the only difference between that child and, and I is that I'm physically able to act upon my sinful impulses where she is physically limited. And, uh, and my grandmother just kind of looked at me um, like, who is this guy? But, um, uh, but the reality of the situation is John Bradford's right. Uh, we are all in the same boat, and if it weren't for God's intervention, we would be in a great heap of trouble. And so, at the Advent, a lot of people will say, I'm tired of hearing about sin, and I'm tired of hearing about the cross. But that's it. <laughs> that, that is our only hope. And the gospel is left-handed in that way, in that, yes, it does sound depressing when we talk about the sinfulness of the human condition, and yet in that there's great hope and there's great joy because redemption is at hand. Uh, there is a rescuer who is there to save us. And a lot of churches will focus on other things, external things. And I found that there's a lot of preaching in the church today that makes Pharisees. I remember hearing a sermon once in uh, a church, and the sermon it was, was being very critical of people who only come to church on Christmas and Easter. 
Now, it wasn't Christmas or Easter when this happened. Uh, But the preacher was saying, uh, shame on those people and how indicative it is of their shallow faith uh, that they're not here on Christmas and Easter. And I thought, what a funny thing to preach on, people who aren't here to listen to this. And, And, of course, I thought, I began to think, I began to think, I wonder what the reception of the congregation is. And I said, well, what am I feeling? And you know what? I started feeling pretty good about myself. Because I could listen to that sermon and say, what? That's not me. I'm here. I'm making it happen. I'm showing off, showing up. He's talking about, well, I know who he's talking about, right? He's talking about those other people. And it's easy for preachers to latch on to those pet issues in the world today, uh, in our society today, because for the most part, many of us can listen to those things and think, yes. That's not me. Um, and we, we dodge the bullet. But instead, what the Bible does is it gets us in its sights and it shoots us down. It shoots us down. But in that dying is resurrection. Right? There is an Easter after Good Friday and death is not the final word in our spiritual lives or indeed in our mortal lives. And we find, like John Bradford, that God is more involved in our lives than we think he is. And when good things happen, we should be especially thankful. The psalmist writes, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's that word again, feared. If you, O Lord, should count our transgressions, If you were to keep score, God, who could stand? Nobody. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If you know the reality of yourself, if you know just how broken down you are, it does cause you to shrink back and ask, who is this that can forgive sins when they are rightly counted against me? Uh, This is one of the big generational differences. I have been by the bedside of many a person that is part of that <clears throat> excuse me, greatest generation that lived through World War II and the Depression. And um, one in, this has happened multiple times, but one instance that really sticks out to me was a lady who was 98 years old. And she had been diagnosed with colon cancer and it had spread throughout her body. And, um, and yet she, she did retain a certain sense of humor about it because when the, man, the doctor came in to talk to her and said, Miss White, how are you doing today? And she said, I'm not doing very well, and I want to know what my options are. And she said, oh, my minister's here. I want him to hear it too. And he said, well, um, you know, the cancer has spread, and um, your options are either chemo or surgery, and surgery is really out of the question because of the frailty of your body. And she said, well, what about this chemo and radiation? And he said, well, Miss White, um, you'll find yourself getting very tired, especially in the afternoons. You'll find yourself very disoriented at, at certain times and incontinence. And she looked up at him with a straight face and said, so no change whatsoever. <laughs> but in a serious moment, uh, I was sitting there with her, and, um, and she was a lawyer, one of the first women barred to practice law in the state of South Carolina, And she looked up, and I have her permission before she died to to tell the story. She looked up at me, and she said, "Um, 
I think God is punishing me for not being more charitable and generous when I first started my practice. When I first started my practice, uh, being a woman, I had to be much more cutthroat and, and had to put myself out there as being professional. And because of I, was, I was a woman, a lot of people preyed on me. I felt and thought because I was a woman, I'd be more likely to take uh, these charitable causes, um, widows who uh, needed to have estates executed and things of the like. Um, and yet, um, I more often than not said no. <coughs> And now God is punishing me for that. Now, you will never hear anybody from Generation X or Y say that ever in their lives. They will say the opposite. What I've been saying all along is that if something bad is happening, it must be some mistake. Where here was a lady, 98 years old, dying of cancer, who thought it was because God was punishing her. Uh, now, part of it was a little bit amusing because I thought, um, this white, how old are you? 98. And God's just now getting around. Um, um, uh, but what I assured her as a believer in the Lord Jesus, um, but with him, there is forgiveness. But with him, there is forgiveness. And I read to her Psalm 103. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That is the property of God to those who are in need. God had not abandoned her. God had not punished her. It wasn't as if some sort of Christian karma was going on, uh, that uh, if you do bad, uh, you better start making up for it later on in life. Uh, but indeed, at 98, uh, her body had finally, at 98, uh, she lived to 99, um, had given out. And yet, God was not dealing with her according to her sins or repaying her for her iniquities, but in fact was being merciful to her and reminding her of his grace. Now, how is it that fear leads us to have a right attitude, a right understanding toward God uh, once we know the reality of ourselves? Uh, always a great biblical example, uh, Peter. Two stories. Luke chapter 5. While the people pressed upon Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had ceased speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, <clears throat> we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish, and as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, remember this, 
Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now fast forward. A couple years later, John chapter 21, and see if any of this sounds familiar to you. Simon Peter said to the others, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. This is right after the resurrection. Now just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work, and sprang into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, bless you, but about a hundred yards off. Strikingly similar stories, right? Jesus says, have you caught any fish? No, Mr. Worldly Wise Fisherman, uh, we haven't. We'll put out, well, for you, we'll put out. They put out, they haven't caught a thing, cast your nets on the other side, and the haul is so great that they can't pull the nets in. Now, remember, this is one of the first encounters with the disciples in Luke chapter 5, and when this happens, what is Peter, Simon Peter's response? Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In that moment, as Simon Peter stood in the holiness of God, he feared God but feared him in a way that he wanted Jesus to get as far away from him as possible. When you are near me, it makes me feel small. It makes me feel puny. It makes me feel broken. It makes me undone. And more often than not, we need to be in that place. But now fast forward, a couple years later, three years about, Jesus has been raised from the dead and he stands on the shore and says, cast him on the other side. Same thing. John says, it's the Lord. Now, actually, you've got to give it to John for being honest. Uh, clearly, John had it out for Simon Peter a little bit because I don't think that I would have said, and then dummy Peter, although was ready to swim, put his clothes on before he jumped into the water. Uh, but that's what John writes, that Peter actually puts his clothes on and then jumps in the water. So the same situation, the first time Peter says, get away from me. And now Peter is doing everything in his power to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can. What's changed? Now, clearly, Peter's behavior hasn't changed one bit. He's still a total knucklehead. He's living up to his nickname, right? Peter in Greek is rocky. And that's on the one hand, it's like, hey, you know, it's, he's tough. But on the other hand, he's got rocks for brains, right? He's, he's, as we say in our family, you got a coconut for a head. And he's, he's not always, you know, he's, he's passes the quiz and fails the course often in life. And yet here is Peter jumping in to get as close to Jesus as he possibly can. Why? What's happened? He understands the gospel. He understands the love that Jesus has for knuckleheads. He understands the love that Jesus has for those when they stand in his presence are puny and little 
and they fear the Lord. For who can forgive sins as grievous as this, as denying Jesus to a little girl, as chopping off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, as falling asleep when Jesus needed him most, of abandoning him at his very time of need. And yet, in spite of knowing who he was in his sinfulness, that fear, though still very real, has now translated into joy. Still fearing the Lord for only... That's what the, the people around Jesus would say. Who is this that forgives sins? Only God can forgive sins. And yet Peter now knows in his brokenness, he has only one place to turn for healing and brokenness. And that's Jesus. And there is nothing that is going to stand in his way to getting to the foot of the cross and to grabbing hold of Jesus. For that is his everything. That is his everything. And in the world in which we live in, uh, that's what every generation needs to hear. Every generation. So generation X and Y, my generations um, that are around my age, um, they need to stand in the presence of Jesus and say, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, for I am a sinful woman. They need to understand the reality of life, and thereby they might actually manage expectations a little bit better. Right? Life is really hard. In our family, we did a very good job of managing expectations. My grandfather would say, Andrew, you are unique, just like everybody else. <laughs> and um, at the time, I hated it, but it was helpful in the long run. Why? Because it gave me an awareness of who I was. And so uh, when our sins are held up before us, uh, we don't think that they can be separated as far as the East is from the West. Because try as, we try to do that. We try to bury them. We try to put them out of our mind. And yet they are ever before us. Who was actually able to remove sin from our life? And not just forgive it, but actually remove it. To remove the guilt that stares us down day after day. Only Jesus can do that. And what happens is your life has changed. Like Peter's. Where no, you no longer fear him in the way of get away from me. But Lord, I have to get as close to you as I possibly can. My all and all. On that day, July 1st, 1555, when John Leaf and John Bradford were burned at the stake in Smithfield, while they were lighting the wood, Bradford said to Leaf, Be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a merry supper with the Lord this night. In the midst of the worst possible thing that could happen in life, you're being burned. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't get much worse than that. And yet, um, John Bradford was jumping out of the boat and swimming to Jesus, uh, knowing uh, that in him uh, there is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is part one of part two this week. Uh, thankfulness to John Bradford that we are all in the same boat. And next week we will actually talk about what happens to Peter between that moment in Luke 5 and John 21 and how we can face the difficulty of life in light of the reality of the world and who we are, uh, but also God's grace. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Henry Light, the great hymn writer. Questions, comments, concerns? Restore thou those who are penitent. We hear that in morning prayer, and that's about the end of it. Mm -hmm. Isn't repentance a... a 
major part of, of forgiveness that we not only can do ourselves, but are expected to do ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you see in, um, in the New Testament is the Greek word metanoia, which actually means uh, like a brain transplant. Um, and so what you find with repentance in the New Testament is it's not so much an issue of I feel bad about what I've done, although that's part of it, and therefore I need to repent. But actually, repentance only comes through God actively intervening in our lives and showing us that what we've done is wrong. So we repentance doesn't begin with us, but actually is due to the fact that God has changed our minds uh, and, and thereby enabled us to say, this is the wrong thing, and I need to repent of it. So... Paul said that in Romans, leading up to Romans 8, uh, that he said, you know, before I became a believer, I thought I was pretty great, right? I, I kind of, I thought I was being faithful. And a lot of people in their testimony used to think, you know, um, when I would wake up Sunday morning, I didn't feel sinful. I just thought, well, that was Saturday night. <laughs> you know, that was kind of par for the course. Uh, but then all of a sudden, when God enters into your life, you begin to see things as they really are and the damage that you're doing to yourself and the reality of sin in your own life. And so it becomes repenting not just for the things that you've done, but in fact, like St. Paul, who will rescue me from this body of death? Like, I, I want to change, and yet I, I can't. And that is repentance, being driven to your knees and, and seeking the Lord because knowing, like Peter, that he's the only one that can bring about change. So repentance is a fruit of, of God's work in our lives. Because I know that there are times when I pray, and, uh, and in our culture, a lot of people say sorry, but they say sorry, sorry that I got caught, right? Sorry, sorry that I've offended you, um, Sorry that you have a problem. You know, with my brothers and I, when we would apologize to one another, we would say, sorry you don't have a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> well, that's not, that's, that's, that's not repentance. Repentance is actually being shaken to the point where, like, I am, I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. Or woman, whatever the case may be. I appreciate very much elucidating on the concept of ungrace and also you're talking about repentance for this reason it seems to me that uh, sermons and teachings on forgiveness in our church is a dime a dozen but we have very very it seems to me less talking about significance of repentance and repentance in our life uh, and that to me is curious because if I'm correct, the first sermon that Jesus gave was not about forgiveness, but about repentance, about metanoia. And it seems to me he's putting forgiveness in a kind of per perspective that one must, one must derive from the concept of metanoia and repentance. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let's, let me give you a biblical example because those are the best ones. Something very curious, read the book of Judges. So, if, you know, every chapter is headed by um, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They cried out for deliverance. The Lord sent them a judge. And then the next chapter says the people once again did what was evil in sight of the Lord. And it's this vicious cycle. But it's sort of, that, that's sort of, you know, 
evil in the sight of the Lord, they repent, God sends a deliverer. But there's a difference in one of the judges, and that's with Gideon. And what happens is the people do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and the people cry out, but they cry out for deliverance, not because of their sin, but because the Midianites are ganging up on them, right? So they're not saying, Lord, we got ourselves in this, but Lord, have you forgotten us? Get rid of the Midianites and the Amalekites. They're really running roughshod over us. Uh, and it's, it's, that, it's that sort of prayer of like blaming something else for actually what is your problem. And God does something very graceful. He actually doesn't wait for them to get to the point where they cry out for a deliverer because of their sins. He sends one anyway. I mean, talk about a great setup for Jesus, right? Isn't that at just the right time? God came into the world to save sinners, right? We didn't invite him. We didn't say, now would be a really great time for you to come and redeem us. Because if that were the case, we never would have asked. We never would have asked. And so God is in the business of redeeming and rescuing and intervening in the lives of his children. Whether we think we need it, whether we want it, he just does it. And we'll talk about that next week. It's time. I've got to go to work. Um, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your property is always to have mercy, and you work in our lives and change our minds and our hearts. In fact, you give us new minds and new hearts. And like the psalmist, we do pray that you would create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. But Lord, we do thank you that you do not deal with us according to our sins, uh, but as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your steadfast love toward those who fear you. And Lord, that you have removed our sins as far as the east is from the west uh, through the cross of Jesus uh, in whom we put our complete trust, uh, the only one we can go to for health and salvation. And in his name we pray. Amen.